Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Roe v. Wade has been overturned, and on this episode, Bishop says we can't rest on our laurels. It's time to build a new culture of life through our witness and respectful dialogue. The show concludes with Bishop breaking down the legal arguments presented in both the majority and dissenting opinions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop. And thank you for being here again, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. We're uh, kind of doing a second part, maybe, if you would. Back in May, I think it was May 10th, we had the episode talking about the leak on the Dobbs case. Now the the opinions, the, the verdict has been released. Roe versus Wade has been overturned. So I thought it was worth revisiting this topic. I do encourage people to go back and listen to that episode. It was really good. I actually listened to it this morning, and oh. it was really great content. So encourage people to check that out. But you did release a statement recently, as well as uh, I think a lot of bishops and uh, different businesses, a lot of things, both positive and negative in the media going on right now. So what, what's your immediate kind of reflection on the the state of, I don't know, conversations of debate that's going on in the world right now? Yeah, it's going to definitely be an ongoing debate. But just to share with you and the listeners how I heard about the decision on June 24th, I had been at Sacred Heart Village in Avila and had mass in the nursing center there. Okay. So I didn't even hear the news right away because we had a lunch after the mass. And so I'm driving back and I, to Fort Wayne and I had all these text messages and I said, what's going on? So I was just so overjoyed at the, at the news. The, it's interesting when I thought about it, you know, that was the feast of the sacred heart of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I thought how appropriate the day that we're praising and adoring the Lord for his great love, and and that's the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I also, someone pointed out to me that also June 24th is the solemnity of the nativity of St. John the Baptist, mm -hmm. but that got bumped to the day before uh -huh. because of the Sacred Heart this year falling on June 24th. And I thought, well, also June 24th, when you think about it, the birth of John the Baptist, and and how he was the unborn child who leapt in the womb of his mother with joy. Right. So so both feasts, I mean, spiritually, that was a, a reflection in, in my own prayer. So, But it definitely was a historic day. Mm -hmm. And the overturning, not only of Roe v. Wade, but also the other decision, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And they were decisions that had grave errors, as Justice Alito said in in the majority opinion by the way it's 79 pages and i really haven't finished it and i want to read it again very carefully i remember back in 1973 and i think we talked about this at a prior episode when i was in high school and then when i went to college and i was studying political science i remember the discussion of the grave constitutional errors in roe v wade mm. and then of course other errors 
in Casey versus Planned Parenthood. So I kind of have an interest in the legal scholarship on this. Right. And I remember how distressed I was, obviously, by the by the, the tragedy of the deaths of so many unborn children, but also the way in which the Supreme Court back in 1973 interpreted the Constitution. And, you know, studying political science and that, it kind of really undermined my faith in, in the system in a way that, that there could be this judicial decision that really was, was terrible in light of the U.S. Constitution. As a matter of fact, I remember one of the justices, I think it was Byron White, if I'm not mistaken, who was in the minority back in 1973, had called it a terrible, raw judicial overreach, hmm. taking this issue out of the hands of the democratic process. In any case, we could talk a little bit more about the actual legal arguments, et cetera. But, but in general, in my statement to the people of the diocese, just a day after the decision, mm -hmm. or maybe it was the day of the decision, I don't remember, I did point out how you know, so many millions of unborn children in our nation were denied the right to life in the past 49 years. I think it's something like 60 million. And the reversal of that decision, a decision that was so immoral and so unjust, has taken place, uh, took, it's taken, you know, five decades. But, the, you know, we've been praying and we've been, I mean, the pro-life movement and the church have been tireless in our efforts of advocacy for the unborn, our peaceful witness witness at marches like the annual March for Life. I mean, it's been a long haul, but yet our people have persevered. And I really want to thank all the faithful who who never gave up on this. And I, and I also pointed out in my statement that we shouldn't think that the protection of the unborn is now guaranteed because it isn't. It's it's returning the uh, issue to the states. Right. So it's up to individual states to determine their abortion laws, including here in Indiana. So we're already looking at what might be proposed as legislation in Indiana so that we can promote and advocate for the protection of the unborn and their mothers. Now, from the faith perspective, of course, it's all about the sacredness of human life. You know, our our love and our reverence for every human life from the moment of conception to natural death. I mean, this is a core tenet of our faith and our call to protect the inviolable dignity of every human person created in God's image and likeness, including the most vulnerable and, you know, the unborn and the elderly and the disabled, etc., I did say that uh, I remember I was in I was giving a, a little talk last week and someone a, a prior speaker had had talked about the judicial victory and I got up and I agreed I said this is a great judicial victory but I I pointed out to the audience that I I wouldn't call it a cultural victory mm -hmm. you know like okay we have a judicial victory but when you see the intense and angry and, in some cases, violent reaction to the Dobbs decision, it kind of shows that that culture of death is still out there, mm -hmm. that we can't rest on our laurels and think, 
that the, the battle is over because it isn't. Not only is it being returned to the states, but we still haven't seen what I would call a, a new culture of life in our nation. I mean, so many people still need conversion of their minds and their hearts to respect the dignity of human life. And therefore, in our works as a church, in education, in our witness, especially our witness of, of love for our neighbor, our love for pregnant women, especially those in difficult circumstances, I think that's the way to build a new culture of respect for human life. So anyhow, there's much to be thankful for, but there's still much work to do. Mm -hmm. You talked about the, the anger and the protests and all that that are going on right now. I mean, seeing on the news and social media, even pro-life people, Christians, a lot of times engaging in not necessarily productive or loving conversations or dialogues, but kind of getting into the nasty and the the disrespectful kind of gloating maybe or or yeah. responding to people's responses. So you, we're celebrating this victory and then somebody says, well, what about this? And then they kind of attack back. Yeah. How are we to celebrate without pushing people away even further? Yeah. Uh, great, great point. I think it's it's definitely counterproductive to engage in with anger mm -hmm. or you know kind of despise despising people who are pro-choice, pro-abortion. No, we we need to engage in a respectful way. If we fall into angry attacks, etc which is what the other side is doing, mm -hmm. then we're kind of acting like they are. No, I think the best way to convince people of the truth about the dignity of human life is to lovingly explain our position to them mm -hmm. and try to convince them. Now, that requires sometimes a lot of patience. Yeah. And when I engage with people who are pro-choice or pro-abortion, I, I do listen to them and their arguments and then I engage them, mm -hmm. you know, and point out errors in their arguments. But I don't do it in an angry way. Right. I do it in a way that, because I know that we don't change hearts that way. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes people don't want to even hear, but I feel, you know, I, I do know situations where I have seen change. Mm -hmm. But it takes, it takes a lot of patience and self-control. But I think, you know, we have the truth on our side. So we shouldn't be afraid to witness to the truth, but always with charity. You know, there's various arguments that the other side will use. And, and we, we can answer mm -hmm. every one of those arguments. I mean, the accusation that we don't care about women or women's health. I mean, I will, I will talk to them about that. I mean, we value the life of every woman as well as every child and unborn child. And as I mentioned, when a woman is in difficult circumstances, we're there to help. Mm -hmm. You know, the solution to a pregnancy that is difficult for whatever reason, financial or emotional or whatever, isn't to kill the child, mm -hmm. which also wounds the mother even more, but to offer the help 
whatever it might be, material, emotional. And that's why we have so many of our good resources like women's care centers and Christ Child Society and Catholic Charities and all of those efforts that we have. You know, it also kind of puzzles me or kind of upsets me is the the radicals on the other side attacking pregnancy centers. Hmm. I mean, pregnancy centers that are assisting moms in need that aren't even necessarily involved politically. They're just taking care of women who are pregnant and need help. And, and then they're attacking these pregnancy centers. That's just appalling. That needs to stop. And we need enforcement of our laws to protect from vandalism and arson and everything like that. You mentioned responding to arguments supporting abortion. And maybe we could do a, a show on that. I'm not sure if we've done that or not. But we also have, and I have a feeling that the show notes for this episode might have a lot of links to them. So we, we'll put a, a link to your statement in there for sure. We have a playlist of different podcast episodes from different shows that have taken on the explanation of the pro-life cause for abortion, all the different situations, and even some storytelling of, of people that have had an abortion and their experience. And so we can put a link to that as well in here. You know what would be good, too, is a link to the USCCB statement. I mean, Archbishop Gomez, sure. the, the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and Archbishop Laurie of Baltimore, who's the chair of our Committee on Pro-Life Activities, issued a statement on June 24th. And I think also there are some great educational resources on the USCCB website okay. because we have our bishops' committee on pro-life activities. You, mm -hmm. you know we have so much you know, we have Respect Life Month and in October and Respect Life Sunday. And there's just a lot of good materials that I think would be helpful to people. All right. Well, we will put a link to that as well, the statement. And any, anything in particular about the statement that that you wanted to point out? Yeah, I, I, I was very happy because I, I read that statement before I wrote my own. Uh -huh. And the USCCB statement said, you know, about how our country has enforced an unjust law, you know, all of these years, and it's resulted in the deaths of tens of millions of preborn children. And yet our nation was founded on the truth that all men and women are created equal, mm -hmm. equal with God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I was happy that that, that statement pointed that out because that important foundational truth of the United States was grievously denied by the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade ruling, which really not only legalized, but kind of made it normal, this taking of innocent human life. It kind of has affected the culture of our nation. One of the bishops, I don't remember who, said it's been like a dark cloud mm -hmm. over our nation for the past almost 50 years. So the bishops, the USCCB, were encouraging elected officials now to enact laws on the state level, policies that will promote and protect unborn children, and also reiterating the church's service to those women who face difficult pregnancies and how important it is that we show them our love and support and any help that they might need. You know, one thing I, I liked in the statement was how they extended how our hearts go out to all the 
women and men who have suffered grievously from abortion mm-hmm. and the importance of praying for their healing. And, you know, that's really important in my own priestly ministry and even as a bishop, trying to help in the healing process for mothers and fathers who have suffered from the abortion, a decision to abort a child. We can't forget that. That's why we have Project Rachel, for example. Mm -hmm. That message, though, doesn't get out in the regular media, the harm that abortion actually does. Sometimes, obviously spiritually, but, but the emotional and psychological harm as well. So the bishops kind of say, okay, now this is the time for us to begin the work of building a a post-Roe America to heal wounds, et cetera, and to have civil dialogue, you know, and reasoned reflection to come together because there's this terrible divide. And I think it's going to take a long time. But we have to continue again to persevere as we have for the past 50 years to serve the cause of life. All right. Well, I, again, we'll put the links to the, both statements, one from the USCCB and the one from Bishop Rhodes in the show notes. Uh, we'll have links to pregnancy resources and, and things like that as well. But if you have any questions for Bishop, you can text them to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll continue to talk about pro-life issues, get a little bit more into the details of the decision that was released Should we boycott certain businesses and what it means to have a consistent pro-life ethic? Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives with products, services, and education. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it back to our members. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, We've been talking about the Dobbs case decision that was released. And Bishop, you said you read through a lot of it. I have not read through any of it. So maybe you can fill us in on some of the details of that. And maybe also, I guess there's both the the majority decision as well as the dissenting opinions. Yeah. No, I'd be happy to. You know, first of all, the, the ruling that was before, the, or the case that was before the Supreme Court was the Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks. And Jackson Women's Health Organization, the organization that was that brought this challenge and, and Dobbs, of course, was on the side of the state of Mississippi. In any case, the vote was six to three, which means that six justices said that what the Mississippi law was constitutional. And then there was another five-four vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion nationwide, and to overturn the 1992 Casey v. Planned Parenthood ruling, which had affirmed Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. The one who wrote the court's majority opinion was Justice Samuel Alito, and he was joined by Justices Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, 
Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. Very sadly, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, wrote a separate, separate opinion. Now, he did agree with the majority in upholding the Mississippi law, hmm. but he did not agree in overturning Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. So he tried to, I mean, I guess you could say kind of a middle ground, but, and of course on the dissenting side were Justices Stephen Breyer, who just retired, and Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. I mentioned the grave constitutional errors. What I've read, I'm almost, you know, I still have several pages to, to go. It's 79 pages long, so it's a lot. Justice Alito's reasoning is one of the best legal analyses that I have ever read. I really important. I mean, I don't know if how many people want to get into the yeah. legal, but I, I do have an interest in constitutional law. And, and the fact is the constitution makes no mention of abortion. Mm -hmm. And yet the high court, Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade basically said that the constitution convert, confers this broad right to obtain an abortion. But American law never or even common law, never recognized such a right. So this was this exercise of raw judicial power, according to the, one of the dissenting justices back in 1973. So Justice Roberts, writing for the majority, said that you know Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion. There's no implicit right, even in any provision of the Constitution, the defenders of Roe and Casey both affirmed that it was the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. That is such a stretch. You know, that provision, you know, was held to guarantee that some rights that aren't explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, no, I'm sorry, the, the 14th Amendment held that any such right must be deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition and at least implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Well, the right to abortion doesn't fall within that category of the 14th Amendment. So it was such weak reasoning. And what the court has, I think, courageously done, because we've had this erroneous decision for all these years, was state quite clearly that and they use the language egregiously wrong. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Hmm. And you know, it's interesting. Justice Ginsburg, who supported rights to abortion, mm -hmm. also had said that the legal reasoning in Roe v. Wade was weak. Hmm. So even opponents, you know. Right. But anyhow, there is one, when I was reading through it and preparing for our, our radio show today, there, there's kind of a lengthy paragraph that I think summarizes the majority's opinion. So if you don't mind, yeah. I know it's kind of long, but I'm not going to read 79 pages. <laughs> but this one lengthy paragraph, I think, kind of sums it up. So if you don't mind, sure. I, will, I will do that. And if you have anything, we want to talk about it. Justice Alito writes, Roe was on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided. Roe found that the Constitution implicitly conferred a right to obtain an abortion, but it failed to ground its decision in text, history, or precedent. It relied on an erroneous historical narrative. It devoted great attention to 
and presumably relied on matters that have no bearing on the meaning of the Constitution. It disregarded the fundamental difference between the precedents on which it relied and the question before the court. It concocted an elaborate set of rules with different restrictions for each trimester of pregnancy, but it did not explain how this veritable code could be teased out of anything in the Constitution, the history of abortion laws, prior precedent, or any other cited source. And its most important rule, that states cannot protect fetal life prior to viability, was never raised by any party and has never been plausibly explained. Rowe's reasoning quickly drew scathing scholarly criticism, even from supporters of broad access to abortion. The Casey plurality, while reaffirming Rowe's central holding, pointedly refrained from endorsing most of its reasoning. It revised the textual basis for the abortion right, silently abandoned Rowe's erroneous historical narrative, and jettisoned the trimester framework. But it replaced that scheme with an arbitrary undue burden test and relied on an exceptional version of stare decisis that this court had, had never before applied and has never invoked since. So I, I think that kind of sums it up. I mean, when you look back at when the 14th Amendment was approved and, and added to the Constitution back in the 1860s, or I think it's 1860, back in the 1800s, you know, abortion was prohibited. It's very clear that the intention was that was never about abortion there, or even implicitly so. And even at the time of Roe v. Wade, many, many states had severe restrictions on abortion. So to claim that this there's some kind of remote intention by the 14th Amendment to allow for abortion is just, it's just impossible mm -hmm. historically. Now, when you look at the response of the three dissenters, yeah. which you mentioned, Kyle, they never, I mean, they don't even respond. They, they with legal reasoning hmm. about this, they don't respond to this scathing critique by Justice Alito. And that says so much. Hmm. It basically says that they're right. Now, they wouldn't say that, but, but it's interesting. They don't engage in the core constitutional issues in their dissent yeah. from the majority opinion because it's, nonsen it's nonsensical. The way Roe and, and Casey, it's really, one scholar said, non-legal nonsense this kind of historical re a hysterical dissent by Kagan Breyer and Sotomayor you know they they give no no attention whatsoever to the interests of any human being before birth that's significantly different is there a state interest in preserving the life of the unborn mm -hmm. obviously it has always been considered an important interest until Roe v. Wade. And they don't even mention that. They don't even confront the argument of the majority about the American people's democratic choice to protect unborn life that goes back to the beginning of our country up until 1973.
they'll say that this is, I think they s- talked about, if I remember right, in the in their dissent, that this is sexist and that this predicts future catastrophes for women's health and all of that. And it's all that emotional kind of thing. And even those arguments can be rebutted, I think, very, very vigorously. So it was really quite an achievement, I think. And I really do admire the courage of Justice Alito and the other justices who joined him in majority decision. Do you think that the writing, the the decision that was published, will have any influence over other politicians at the state at the state level? Will they read that and say, "Oh, maybe we should adjust things"? Or are they already kind of locked into either being for or against abortion, and they're just going to keep going in that direction? I kind of think they're going to keep. I mean, there might be a few who will take seriously the arguments in the majority opinion. But this has become a kind of an irrational, almost just kind of emotional thing mm-hmm. in so many. But I think, I really think it's important for them to just seriously look at this. This is about our nation's constitution. Again, we're talking here on the constitutional legal area, not focusing right now on the moral issues, but but also what is there in the Constitution, and even prior to it in the Declaration of Independence, does provide a moral foundation. There is a moral foundation. You know, we can't dismiss, as Catholics, we do believe in the importance of the natural law and that there are certain rights that are God-given. And so did the framers of the Constitution. So there's not this divorce between our faith and this legal, because, you know, Laws need to be just, but we live in a democracy, so we do have this system, and that's why, you know, I mean, I would rather see abortion be outlawed throughout our country, and now it's returned to the states. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a, a big improvement, but I think arguments can be made from the Constitution for a federal protection, national protection of human life. That would, you know, in the cultural context, that would be very difficult. You'd, you know, you'd have to have a human life amendment to make it very clear. But this is a big step because many, many lives will be saved. And since this has all been published and debated and and protested and all of that, there's also been companies that have come out saying that they're going to support their employees if the abortion isn't available in their state, that they would pay for the travel to go to a state that does provide abortions. Is there any obligation for Catholics, for Christians, for pro-life people to boycott these companies? Just to name a few, I don't know the extent that they're offering, but Disney and Amazon and Starbucks and Dick's Sporting Goods have all, like there's a bunch of companies that have said we will support uh, and pay for the travel expenses to go to another state. Oh, I'd support boycotting them. I don't know what who they are, so I'm glad you mentioned some mm-hmm. to me. I'll have to check it out. I mean, in some ways, companies or corporations entering into this in such a way, I mean, you know, we who are customers, I think should make our our voices heard. And I guess the only way we can do it, unless we own stock in the company where there are votes on, you know, and all that. But, and I mean, 
to invest in companies like that, I think we, by the way, we're very careful with church funds and our investments, not only in the diocese, but around the country, including the guidelines that we have for um, the USCCB. And we will not invest in those companies that mm -hmm. support abortion. And I think even like you're talking about, what can the average person do? Yeah, I would like to boycott them. I, I think and maybe even to let the company know. Right. I, I think, yeah, my contribution to some of these companies might be so small in comparison to their billions of dollars or whatever that without writing something, then they have no idea that I stopped purchasing yeah. things from them. So I do think writing is important. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, do you know, is there a list of those companies? You know, I was trying to find that and I found there's a Vox article that listed a couple of them. They were in favor of this. They're, they're promoting these companies as heroes, you know. Oh, really? Um, but uh, they mentioned uh, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Meta, Warner Brothers, Reddit, Meta, of course, Facebook and Instagram. So wow. I, I imagine that the list is probably growing frequently. Wow. But uh, maybe that's something that we could kind of put together and yeah and well you know what's been so disturbing in recent years is how companies have gotten involved in promoting and and, and getting involved politically mm -hmm. but also and in promoting things that are you know abhorrent to us mm -hmm. morally I, I was trying to think i don't know that corporate america was taking positions you know like that until right. recent decades. I Maybe they were, and I just wasn't aware of it, but um, I find it very disturbing. Mm -hmm. And I think employees should let their voices be heard, sure. but especially the boards and those who have governance in these corporations. Can't there, aren't there pro-life people in, you know, yeah. in these boards? I, I don't know. Right. And one of the things that you mentioned in the May... 10th episode and you mentioned today is the organizations that are local and national that are helping women that are in crisis pregnancies that that hopefully providing you know the resources and the options that they need uh, we'll have a list of of those as well if people want to support them either financially or with time or promoting those to others as well anything that you think is missing either locally or nationally to support women that that would be inclined to seek out an abortion? You know, that, that's a really good question because I was actually thinking about that some weeks ago and nothing comes to mind. I can think, I, I mean, as far as I know, every need that might arise, we have some agency or that can help, but we may find something that we didn't really know and mm -hmm. think about, but then we would try to, we would do something about yeah. it. But, but when you think even now we have shelters for pregnant women, we have Obviously, all the, the great care that our women's care centers give in so many ways to pregnant women, our Catholic charities. And, you know, we have this wonderful program that has been really successful, who helps high school girls who become pregnant, you know, to help them through their pregnancy and to be able to remain in school. So I think, yeah, there's all a variety of needs. And I think we... Um, we have ways to help in all of those needs. Again, if there's a need that we, I don't know about, that we, then we would have to start. Sure, sure. And then finally, we've been focusing on the issue of abortion, but how does this fit in with a, a pro-life, a consistent pro-life ethic, and, and what are some other things that we need to be keeping in mind? 
Well, yeah, I, that's a great question because, you know, one of the things I said in my statement is, you know, that as far as the Catholic Church is concerned and our own teaching, we're very strong about our reverence and love for every human life from the moment of conception to natural death. So not just the innocent unborn, mm-hmm. but children in poverty, anyone, especially the vulnerable, those whose lives are vulnerable, the sick, the disabled, you know, the poor, refugees, and uh, those on death row. I mean, we, we do have a consistent ethic of life, and I'm proud of that. I think that's a beautiful part of Catholicism. It's actually the gospel of the Lord mm-hmm. Jesus. Very good. I mean, well, he says that's how we're going to be judged. Right. I mean, we all know Matthew 25, the parable of the last judgment, and we'll be judged. Whatever we do to the least of our brothers and sisters, we do to him. Right. It's crystal clear. Yeah. And the challenge for us all, are, are we doing that? Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. Again, we'll have links for the statements, for resources as well in the show notes for this. If you're listening on the podcast, you can just click on the show notes. If you're listening on the radio, you can go to spokestreet.com slash askbishop for all the past episodes there, as well as the show notes for this episode. So you can find that there, as well as you could submit questions. There's a little form at the bottom of that page, spokestreet.com slash askbishop, and you can submit your question there. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Happy to. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.